This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Here's what's on the Oakley Show podcast for Monday, October 19, 2020. What's driving the rise in extremist groups in America? We speak with the director of an organization that studies such things, and he has a few ideas. We all know we're going to die, uh, so why do so many of us die without a will? And an update from a parent in York Region who's been deeply inconvenienced by the dysfunction plaguing the education system right now. All of this starts now. There are many for whom uh, we're really on the fringes of sliding into, I don't know, martial law or police state. I'm hearing that being said. And when you get to that kind of mindset, uh, it can really uh, raise the hackles and in some uh, have a reactionary type of uh, response to which we're seeing stateside boy oh boy uh, very toxic political climate as we get up to the election and there's even talk that you know this is something akin to a civil war if uh, it really gets out of hand who knows what might ensue but there is a problem with all of that uh, because they've got guns as we know and the proliferation of messaging now uh, on the internet and the various channels you know on the dark web uh, really spooky stuff but here to help us understand and contextualize all of that, Brian Levin is with us, professor of criminal justice. As well, he's the director of the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at California State University in San Bernardino. Brian Levin, good to have you on the Oakley Show in Toronto. Good afternoon. John, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate you coming on. I mean, uh, we're living in a time fraught with all kinds of uh, tension and uh, veiled threats, direct threats and everything. Tell me about uh, what you're starting. Have you noticed that there's a perceptible uh, spike in groups that, you know, are, are formed in these nether regions, I guess, or if not out and out in the, uh, on the Internet, that could present uh, a danger to life and limb? Yes, but, you know, more elemental, I think you hit on two important points. One is the proliferation of firearms here in the United States. And there's been a significant increase in sales into the pandemic. Also, you reference social media. I think that's something that's played a significant role, for instance. So this Liberate movement, which started around mid-April, actually, I believe, served as a, an elastic reservoir, this, this meeting place for various uh, folks with grievances and some of those that entered into that uh, kind of meeting place, gathering place, were what we call Second Amendment insurrectionists. These are people who not only believe in a private constitutional right to gun ownership, but they also believe that they can rise up with an armed rebellion when the government becomes tyrannical. And you can understand when people go into their own cells or groups, uh, there's no vetting and there's no determination of, to when the government is exactly tyrannical. But you get the idea. And what we've had is millions of people join the Liberate movement on Facebook. <clears throat> and then we saw concomitant. We saw QAnon. We saw the Boogaloo Boys. And then we saw this emergence of the Civil Guard also on Facebook. So what had happened was these entities which had grievances or conspiracy theories before really got to coalesce on social media and now with this court political environment that you spoke of we have a bit of a problem here in the states going into the election election times tend to be here in the united states uh 
times of increased hate crime, but also a time of extremist plots and sometimes even terror attacks. Well, uh, to that point, I mean, uh, the plot plot to kidnap uh, Gretchen Whitmer, the governor in in Michigan. I mean, when you've got guns plus the grievance culture, uh, this might not have ended well, but I guess there were informants and uh, people who dropped the dime on the 13 who were complicit in all of that. Is that sort of indicative of the kinds of things that are happening in this fraught climate, this toxic, uh, polarized situation stateside? Yes, I think you hit it exactly. Let me kind of combine the two with you. You made an excellent segue there. Let's look at the three worst months for hate crime in the United States over the last decade. November 2016, which was the worst going back to 2002, actually. That was election month. What happened around election month? Well, the day after election was the day with the highest number of hate crimes that we've had in 13 years prior and since. But also there was a plot to blow up a predominantly Muslim-populated Somali-American apartment complex in Kansas. Then we look at the second worst month, October 2018. That was when the House flipped from red to blue. And what did we see? We saw October, in other words, the month before the election, be the worst month, uh, the second worst month of the decade, and certainly the worst month that year. But what did we see in the run-up to the election when the flip was going the, you know, the other way? We saw the increase occur beforehand, and we saw the Tree of Life massacre in Pittsburgh on October 27th, just days before, along with a couple of homicides. Throw in another thing on top of that, you got Russian misinformation and disinformation, and you have the emergence online of, of a greater frequency of extremists and bigoted epithets. So it's kind of like a perfect storm, unfortunately, around these times. Again, Brian Levin with us, Prof of Criminal Justice, as well, the Director of the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at Cal State, San Bernardino. Uh, So, Brian, I mean, are these groups predominantly uh, extremists on the right, the far right? uh, Or do you say, I mean, it can also balance out because I know Antifa, uh, such as they're constructed, uh, they're from the left. Is it a wash or how do you see these things for the most part? Oh, wow. What a, another great question. You know, we're not only fragmented and polarized, but we also have an interesting diversity. Guess what? Not only in extremists, but how they organize and how they uh, uh, conduct themselves. So, for instance, with respect to the hard right, militia organizing, and, and what's interesting is not all militias um, are actually out uh, doing uh, uh, violent things. But the bottom line is that we also have on the hard left a network as well, but it tends to be more online and it tends to be more effective in certain localities as opposed to nationally. And the other thing I would say is you don't really have militia organizing with the hard left because their kind of like MO has been going to these events where who they believe fascists or neo-Nazis are, are congregating and really shouting them down and tussling with them, as opposed to what we've been seeing with the range on the hard right, which ranges from the civil guards and vigilantes all the way to these folks like the Boogaloo Boys and Accelerationists, by the way, let's make it even more confusing, who, who can also have um, fellow, well, I shouldn't say fellow travelers, not ideologically so, but subcultures on the left. 
So in other words, what we're seeing is we're seeing these templates uh, with regard to organizing, even some subcultures that go across the ideological spectrum. But generally what we see are, are these militias are more uh, on the right. We have seen a sprinkling on the left. And what we've also seen in this leaderless resistant world of the hard right here in the United States and elsewhere is the glorification of these so-called loners who are actually incubated in an eco-chamber online and then act out violently with mass attacks, as we've seen in El Paso, uh, as, as well as in Pittsburgh. Well, Brian, who or what's responsible for uh, the social disruption in places like Portland that went on for over 100 days or Seattle? I mean, that was always ascribed to Antifa, though, not, and not so much uh, right-wing militias, was it? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and, and the, the Bay Area, Portland, and Seattle are particularly neat places here in the United States with a hard left. I don't want to say Antifa because Antifa can be a lot of different things, but the hard left is much more coalesced and much more organized. But we don't see that same kind of activity except for certain places uh, where there's been some catalytic event, like a police use of force, or some kind of uh, political controversy. Generally, what I would say is your reference to Seattle, Portland, and, and just a couple of other places are places where the hard left has been more networked and coalesced. We haven't seen that with respect to the rest of the country with, uh, with the kind of organizing. We have seen certainly opportunistic uh, types of violence, mostly on the property side of things, but you hit something very interesting, and that is for the first time that we've seen in years, we've had our first hard-left homicide here in the United States. Last year, we counted 29 far-right homicides, and DHS counted 39. So bottom line is that uh, there's a diversification going on with extremism, and while the far right doesn't have a monopoly on it, uh, they, they certainly are the most prominent risk with regard to extremist fatalities that we see in the United States today. Although it is diversifying, and as times get more chaotic and unclear, you can see different groups across the ideological spectrum barring methods and tactics from groups that they regard as successful, whether they're fellow travelers or antagonists. I find this a fascinating quote attributed to you. In the past, you'd really have to look for the militia of Montana. Uh, These days, it's like finding a dentist. They're that ubiquitous or common, I guess. Uh, You know, it's a really arresting story that uh, these groups are proliferating. And you also say the second most viewed upload now in this realm is the anarchist cookbook. What's that about? Yes, there's, uh, there's a place online called My Militia. But I will tell you that Facebook was a place where a lot of organizing took place. So what I'm saying to you is we now have uh, three things. One is the traditional folklore uh, with regard to militia organizing here in the United States. But on top of that now, we have these large social media uh, conglomerations where folks can gather. And on top of that now, we the uniquely 2020 Boogaloo Boys who are looking for a civil war with QAnon, who are looking for a storm, you get the idea. So what I'm saying is we have a merging, and it's, it's, it's getting together online of not only these traditional hard-right uh, folks, but also new ones that are coalescing in this Internet age. And what I'm saying is 
places like Facebook and other sites have supercharged the organizing of this movement. And we've seen, by the way, concomitantly, uh, a bit of this on the left, but, but not nearly the numbers and not nearly the geographic spread and the type of organization. Real quick, you might ask why. One of the things that we saw, for instance, in the early 70s, when one group feels that their analogs or, or conduits in the mainstream have eroded, we I'm saw the hard left bombs uh, like once a week. Now it looks like we're going to, to an insurgency with regard to the hard right who sees their standard bearer. And I'm not saying that President Trump is a bigot. I'm losing you there, but I can see where the shift is. I mean, whereas it might have been the weather underground back in the 60s or the SDS, and now you're saying it's uh, predominantly uh, stuff like this from the right. I appreciate your time, Brian. Uh, this is a fascinating one, obviously. Uh, it's something that bears uh, remembering in the days ahead, before uh, November 3rd and perhaps in its aftermath, too, where m many of these things will, uh, I'm sure, rear their ugly heads again. Uh, thanks so much for your time in explaining, Brian. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, and I think you're totally right. Keep your eyes open after the elections, too, because as these groups see their power with the centrists, eroding they often act as an insurgency thank you you got it brian levin again professor of criminal justice and the director of the center for the study of hate and extremism at cal state san bernardino the majority of canadian adults don't have a will a quarter uh polled in this online survey said they're too young to worry about it 23 percent say they don't have enough assets to warrant a will in ontario uh 54 percent over half don't have a will and that's because uh, Ontarians, as a rule, seem to be younger, that demographic, than they are in places like B.C. or Quebec. Women, less likely than men, by the way, to have a will. Uh, one of the reasons for this background, or two, is that this uh, is a movie star of some renown. Uh, the guy who played Black Panther in the Avenger movies, Chadwick Boseman, as well as Jackie Robinson in 42, uh, Marshall, and Thurgood, he was Thurgood Marshall, and... Uh, well, he's had a number of hits of late, and he got married last year. But at uh, 43, he passed recently from colon cancer. And uh, his bride-slash-widow uh, really doesn't have access right now to his estate or the part that he might have left her. Uh, and so this is sort of a cautionary tale. Probably should have a will. Should that befall you? Whoever knows? This guy was 43. So much to look forward to. Longevity and all, and uh, it wasn't to be. Aaron Burry has joined us on the line. The CEO of Willful, that's an online platform that allows you to create your own will right here in this country. Aaron, good to have you on board. Good afternoon. John, thank you so much for having me. Delighted to be speaking with you. Well, my pleasure, because there's some ground to cover that's uh, out of necessity, I guess. I mean, you help people create their own will. Uh, and so is this like a pro forma thing, uh, you know, just like you might with a tax uh, form or something like that, and it's got everything covered legally? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, similar to TurboTax, Willful helps guide you through a series of questions and then turns your answers into uh, customized legal documents. And we work with estate lawyers in each province to make sure that they're comprehensive and that they are up to date with provincial legislation, because a lot of folks don't know it's provincially regulated and there are a lot of differences between the provinces. Erin, typically, what are the principal considerations when it comes to filling out a will? Great question. There's 
you know, everyone seems to have a misconception that wills are these overwhelming documents, that they take forever, that they're extremely complex. But a will doesn't require you to have your net worth statement or a list of all of your assets. It's really just a set of key decisions. Who do you want to be your executor who will actually wrap up your estate uh, and execute the will? Who do you want to take care of any dependents, whether that's minor children or pets? And who do you want to get your stuff? It's really just a document that outlines those key roles. And you don't actually contain things like a list of assets typically in your will, although it's helpful to keep those with your will so your executor has an easier time. Yeah, I I would guess. I mean, people would want to avoid having their assets frozen, wouldn't they? Uh, What leads to that? Yeah, so often in the case of Mr. Bozeman, who unfortunately didn't have a will, uh, when you pass away without a will, the courts have to appoint someone called an administrator, which is what his wife has applied to be. And until the court grants approval for that, no one can really touch or act on behalf of your assets. They can't sell them, they can't transfer them into somebody else's name, invest them, or anything like that. If you have a will that names an executor, that person can actually start acting immediately upon your past to do those things. So it's really when you don't have a will that there's a gap between when you pass away and when someone can actually act on your behalf. Is there a risk that your assets would go down a black hole and the government assumes them? It's a great question. So there is a myth that the government gets your things, your assets, if you pass away without a will. But in actuality, every province has a default set of rules that dictate how your assets are distributed. So typically, you know, in Ontario, for example, if you pass away without a will, your spouse gets the first $200,000 of your estate, your child gets the next 200000 and it moves down the list. So if you don't have a spouse or a child, it goes to parents siblings, you know, cousins, third cousins, and only if they can't find a living heir that's related to you, that's when the government takes control of your assets. So it's really only in the rarest of cases. So how do we uh, account for these stories that we hear uh, from time to time about contested wills? If you're saying there's a pecking order that's pretty uh, clear in defining who gets what and uh, so on and so forth, what leads to, for the most part, contested wills? Yeah, so for the most part, it falls into two categories. The first would be a dependent who does have a claim to the estate. So family law in Ontario says that if you're a spouse or if you're a child of someone, you actually have a legal right to a share of that estate. So if someone cut out their child, the child could make a claim and say, hey, I have a right to it. And the other category is just people that want a share of the estate who may not actually have a right to it. So in that case, you know, cousin Eddie comes out of the woodwork and says, I'm owed a bunch of money. The onus is really on cousin Eddie to show evidence that the testator, the person who created the will, actually intended to give them something. Wow, Cousin Eddie uh, almost sounds like a skull-like figure in a heavy metal band, but uh, still, uh, common law spouses have as much claim as legally married folk. I guess that would be uh, applicable with the laws in Ontario, uh, that common law after two years, you're still good to go, right? Well, it's a great point because in Ontario, uh, fun fact, when you get married, unless you include what's called a contemplation of marriage clause, your will is invalidated. So if you're sitting there and you had a will when you got married, but you haven't updated it, I would definitely recommend updating it. Uh, And if you're common law and you don't have a will and you pass away, that provincial formula that I mentioned actually doesn't have an automatic right for a common law spouses. So if you're in a common law relationship, it's even more important to have a will to make sure that your common law spouse is accounted for.
I see. Uh, by the way, can you ever put these things together on a napkin? Uh, we hear tell of that. Is that apocryphal or can that be done? It can absolutely be done. So there's uh, several ways to make a will. There's no requirement that says that you have to visit a lawyer. You can either visit a lawyer, which is obviously the most comprehensive, but also maybe the more exp- most expensive. You can use a platform like Willful, or you can literally grab a piece of paper and write with your own handwriting your wishes and sign it. That is called a holograph will, and it's legal in Ontario and most provinces. Uh, and there's actually an interesting case in Ontario recently of someone who wrote their will on a McDonald's napkin and it was held up as valid in court mm, okay and uh whoever it was that uh, was the beneficiary also got fries with that uh so you're saying up update or change change is not difficult either uh you can just by i guess uh changing the date on it uh does it obviate the previous document then yeah as soon as you a new version of a will, it automatically revokes any previous version. So you can just destroy those. And it's important to note that anywhere in Canada, it's illegal to sign or store your will online. So this is unfortunately still a very paper-based process, although obviously COVID has led to a lot of uh, conversation about how we might be able to move these processes online. All right, because yours is an online platform, uh, it allows you to create your own will, but I'm guessing you print that out, don't you? Yeah, John, there's still paper involved. You still have to print that PDF and uh, and undertake signing it offline. Although because of COVID, uh, the Attorney General in Ontario has allowed for what they're calling virtual witnessing. So typically when you execute a will, unless it's one of those handwritten ones I talked about, you have to have witnesses. And they're just verifying you are who you say you are. Uh, and so typically it's two witnesses who sign the document along with you. The Ontario government and the governments in places like BC and Saskatchewan have now allowed for you to hop on a Zoom call or a video call and to do it that way. But you still have to have those signatures on the physical paper documents. It's all good news to know. Aaron, I really appreciate your updating us uh, on this matter that uh, not enough people actually have comprised a will and uh, may be to their detriment. So uh, let this be the cautionary tale or at least uh, some enlightenment. Aaron Burry, CEO of Willful. That's an online platform allowing you to create your own will here in this country. Thanks so much for your time, Aaron. Thanks, John, for having me. We heard a story last Monday, you might recall, from a mother, Lorena's her name, uh, was grossly inconvenienced because her child had not, as of yet, as of last Monday, had a dedicated teacher. And the minister had assured that by Thanksgiving anyway, this was several weeks back, every child in Ontario would have a teacher dedicated to them or their class, be it online or in the school proper. Uh, So we wanted, by way of an update, to find out what Lorena's story was here this particular Monday, a week removed, and she's joined us back on the line on the Oakley Show. Lorena, good to have you back on board. Good afternoon. Hi, John. How are you? Thanks so much for having me again. Well, I appreciate you coming on because it's an important story to follow up on because we know at the time you were uh, quite disturbed that nothing had been done satisfactorily. Although I understand in the immediate aftermath of that interview, uh, the superintendent from the board got in touch with you? Yes, that's right. She did. Uh, she got in touch with me within five minutes of me talking to you. Wow, that's good. Uh, that's I almost... actually have a, a private call coming in right now as I'm speaking to you, so I'm curious to know if that would be her or not. She's listening to the show and realizes <laughs> she better do something preemptively. If you want to take the call, I can tap dance for a while. Yeah, yeah, that'd be good, especially on radio, right? 
<laughs> well, okay. Uh, when you said that, be good. I was hoping you'd be facetious. Uh, anyway, because some, some folks are not. Uh, they ask me to hold while they go and do something, pet the dog. All right. So uh, what was actually said in the immediate aftermath of last Monday's conversation? Did you get some kind of satisfaction? Yeah. So basically, she had assured me that uh, my son would be in a remote class as of Friday at the latest. Um, that. Thursday. So we spoke on the Wednesday and that Thursday morning they had a supply. No, they had the librarian in and he was teaching the class. He did a fantastic job. And then Friday they actually had a supply teacher in. So that's the teacher that has now been um, at the school. She'll be at the school, I guess, on a week by week basis, as I understand it. But she has been fantastic as well. Um, Now it's just a matter of seeing if she can stay in the position if they're having such a hard time filling it. I see. So nothing is set in stone. This is still very much a fluid or a situation in flux. That's right. So as as I understand it, um, she's a temporary fill-in until they find a permanent teacher. Now, are there other kids beyond your own child, I guess, that are still uh, going through this? You know, one day we don't know if we're going to have a full-time teacher, yes or no? Is that happening Um, at the uh, York Catholic Board? As I, I am aware of it happening in another class, same thing. They're trying to fill it, and there's a supply teacher teaching there right now. Uh, so it is happening to other families, not just ours. Are you still concerned then, or do you think that this has been resolved for the most part satisfactorily? I wouldn't say it's been resolved. I think I feel I'll feel like it's been resolved once they say, "Okay, yes, she's this is your permanent teacher for the rest of the year." then I feel like I'll actually be able to kind of breathe a sigh of relief. Right now, there's still some things up in the air, but I do feel like it is an improvement from what we were talking about last week. Yeah, like and last week, look... At least he's learning, and, you know, he's being engaged. Um, so that is at least makes me feel a bit better. Mm-hmm. Senior kindergarten, that's where he's in senior kindergarten, right? Yes, that's right. Okay. Uh, I guess the other thing is that this was the hybrid model that was affected there because uh, i guess out of necessity or lack of resources but your child was the teacher was actually teaching in the classroom bricks and mortar but also uh they were sending the i guess your child was getting the feed online is that right yeah you're talking about the last like since they've implemented this new hybrid model right right yeah so that's correct so since they've implemented this new hybrid model he's essentially following along um the class that's being taught as you said in bricks and mortar but the and, teacher's done a fantastic job in terms of um, engaging both the kids online and in class. How many in total is she teaching, do you know? I feel like she's probably teaching close to 30 kids. Oh. I think maybe eight online and about 20 in class. You're good with that? You're saying your child is engaged and uh, seems to be picking up on things. So is that satisfactory as well, that ratio? I mean, some parents have complained. Yeah, I mean, okay, he was, when he was in his remote class, he also was, had 30 kids in the class. Um, I still feel like the, let's call it the original model was better, where they kept the remote learners in a virtual school and they kept the in-class learners in their physical school. Um, just because, you know, the teaching is always slightly different. The evaluating is a little different. So I feel like in an ideal world, it'd be better if they just went back to the original model they had. But again, with him not having a teacher last week, I'm just happy that 
he's got some sort of learning experience now. Well, that is a positive step forward. Uh, may not be the ideal uh, or living up to the expectation that we had at the outset, but that's a good good sign at least. And I guess if the superintendent was to get in touch with you again today uh, in the perfect world, how would you have that resolved? I mean, what do you think or what would you hope that that superintendent would tell you today? I would hope that she can at least make the supply teacher permanent for the remainder of the year. Ah. That would be, to me, that's like a realistic solution. You've been having an issue filling this position. You have a supply that's here. I mean, I don't know the politics behind what goes into making somebody full-time, you know what I mean? But from an ideal world, it's like if she would just say, yep, she's full-time, she's your teacher for the rest of the year, that would be, I would be happy with that, given the circumstance. You know, it's kind of interesting when you say, I don't know the politics behind it or whatever, but uh, it was last week that... uh, the education minister actually announced that he was going to a different hiring model and that would include based on merit and if there's somebody that the principal likes without even having been there for a long long time because usually it's you know you interview five teachers with the most seniority and then pick one uh, this may be the new model being applied if the supply teacher is good there may be a chance that uh, that's your child's new teacher going forward, whether it's in the classroom or online because of the hybrid model. So uh, you'll have to let us know if that's, in fact, the eventuality. But, Lorena, it sounds like things are heading in the right direction and you've almost got this resolved to your satisfaction. That's right. They're definitely moving in the right direction. You know, a little, maybe a little slower than would, that would, than would be nice, but mm. it's definitely a step in the right direction. And, yeah, if we can resolve this in the next week i would i would be happy for sure all right well we're going to follow up again and see if in fact uh, that's what we've arrived at so i'll i'll free up your phone line in case the superintendent wants to call <laughs> and give you the the good news right now so again thank you so much for updating us on the story that uh, we started following last week it's an important one and i think a lot of parents may actually uh, be in a similar situation so you're kind of the the template for those considerations Well, and thank you again so much for the opportunity to share my story and now to share this update. And I'll definitely keep you posted on anything else that uh, will happen when it happens. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Lorena. Thank you so much. Have a great day. And you. Uh, There you are. All right. Lorena from the York Catholic District School Board. We hope we've affected some kind of a resolution. I like to solve problems. Goodness knows I've caused enough of them. That's a wrap for the Oakley Show podcast for Monday, October 19, 2020. Listen weekdays live from 3 to 6 Eastern. Turn the dial to 640. Listen live at 640toronto.com or search the name John Oakley on Spotify. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio. 